You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight I have a great guest. I have Audrey from Urban Amphibia. And you may remember Audrey from back in episode 58. We talked about quite a few things there. We got to, you know, cover quite a bit of ground. But Audrey has some new projects coming up now, especially with uh, Ufaga Pamilio Blue Jeans, which we're going to kind of focus the show on that. And a lot of other stuff that she's got going on now. She's been working... um, teaching uh, at uh, veterinary hospitals about about different things. Uh, she's also gotten into supplying some of her frogs to zoos and other types of institutions. So we're going to cover all that and a lot more. But uh, first of all, r- right off the top of my head, I know I say thanks for the, you know, the five stars on Apple podcast, but I want to say like a really legit heartfelt thank you to two listeners who'd left me some really nice comments. Um, by now it would be a couple of weeks back, but um, it was uh, K5MOW and uh, the second listener, I'm trying to, I don't know how to make quite sense out of the name because it looks like it's just a bunch of letters, but uh, it was F-F-H-N, um, and then it kind of goes on with some other letters. I don't know you know, if that's a name or what, but um, to the two of you who left those nice reviews, that was really nice. I, I saw those. I, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for the kind input, and thank you to everybody else who's left nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, you know, five-star stuff. Uh, I really appreciate that. It it shows that you guys are enjoying the content that I'm putting out, and uh, it gives a lot of this meaning and purpose to know that I'm having an effect. So thank you to the both of you. I really appreciate that. And uh, other than that, if you want to get some Amphibicast merch, you want to get a 10% discount off of Insitio Ecosystems Vivariums, uh, click on the link, the link trade. It's the one link. It'll take you everywhere. It'll take you to all the different uh, platforms you can listen to the show on, take you to the merch store. You can get some cool T-shirts, stickers, things like that. Like I said, the 10% discount on in-situ ecosystems vivariums. And there's also a link there for Panamanian frog conservation. Uh, I hope you guys got a chance to check out Edgardo Griffith's episode from EVAC. We had a long conversation about Panamanian golden frog conservation. So there's a link there if you want to make a donation or get involved with that somehow. Check on that link in the link tree. And it'll, like I said, link tree is great. It'll take you everywhere you want to go. So all that out of the way, all that aside, uh, Audrey, welcome back. It is so great to have you back on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be back. Thanks for inviting me again, Dan. Yeah, it was a real. We had a real good time talking last time, and um, it's been a while. But why don't you catch up the listeners in terms of what you've been up to recently? I know it's been um, it's been like almost a year actually. I think since I've had you on the show. What have you What have you been up to lately? Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, so first and foremost, I have been running and gunning with shows. Uh, doing a ton of different expos and uh, have a little bit of a break now. So you caught me at a perfect time. (laughs) But for instance, this year, uh, let's see, 52 weeks of the year, I have about three quarters of those filled with shows for 2022. (laughs) And then my next one I'm actually really excited about is going to be July uh, mid-July. It's a Show Me Snakes uh, put on by Mickey Mantle. He does a lot of those shows across the East Coast. I know he's based in Missouri, but they are kind of reaching into uncharted territory now out in West Texas. And they invited me to go out and do, they have two new shows, uh, one in El Paso and one in Odessa this year. So my next one is going to be especially brand new dart frog territory out in El Paso, Texas. (laughs) So I'm super excited about that. Um, 
you know, of course, always adding new breeding projects to the group. So I was very excited. I was recently graciously gifted a proven trio of uh, small form redheads. So that was really, really unexpected and incredibly exciting for me. I uh, set them up in my living room and they're going to town calling and courting already. So I have pretty high hopes for those guys and to be able to offer those as well. Um, and then, you know, working more with the the blue jeans, of course, that's kind of what a lot of the zoos and aquariums and whatnot reach out to me for. But I know we can talk more about that a little bit later. And then, um, you know, teaching, I was asked to teach the first ever amphibian wet labs at my alma mater at Texas A&M University. So that was really, really just a great honor for me. I was kind of taken aback by that in the best way possible. And that was really fun. Honestly, one of the most rewarding things that I've done thus far. <laughs> so that was, that was really cool. Definitely not something I expected in a million years. And then a uh, big thing that's kind of just more of a personal project for me that uh, it's, it's very near and dear to my heart because I come from a big family of military. Uh, my youngest brother, he is a combat veteran that unfortunately suffered from a traumatic brain injury on his last tour in Afghanistan. And he works now as a VA counselor and does a lot of organized events for fellow disabled veterans. And so this year we kind of teamed up and, you know, VFWs, they always have the bingos and all that. And everybody loves a good round of bingo every now and then, but you kind of want to jazz it up and do something a little different, a little special, keep people on their toes. And so he had coordinated with me to see if I'd be interested in doing something along the lines of like a therapeutic animal seminar with the veterans. And so that was a very rewarding experience for me. Uh, you know, my dad's a hundred percent permanent and totally disabled veteran. I have three brothers that were all military. So like I said, it's something that's very personal to me. I uh, just, regardless of, how you feel. I think it's important that, you know, these guys get, get what they deserve and certainly what they've earned and animals can be very healing in ways that nothing else really can. And so I of course have more than just darts and I work with a lot of people that are big in the animal game, but I brought uh, several dart frogs and my tiger salamander just cause people are always enamored with them. Uh, chinchillas, parrots, uh, hedgehog, several other species, and it was it was a great success. So very very cool. Um, if I can give a takeaway message of anything from this entire podcast, I would encourage my fellow animal keepers to do what you can to reach out and help the community. Uh, as we all know, times are tough, and we all got to kind of band together and be good stewards. And plus, it's a great opportunity to to help educate the general public as well about these animals that are near and dear to our hearts. So kind of knock out multiple aspects when you're doing that. 
Yeah, public relations is important, especially with this type of life that so many of us are so immersed in. And I think that by doing positive things and by giving what we do some credibility, it leaves a good taste in people's mouths as opposed to a lot of the media sensationalism and a lot of things that put much of what we do out of context. For sure. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it's the human element as well is something that's really integral to this as well, because look, we're all people. We all have emotions. We all have fears. We all have things that make us happy, sad and whatnot. And for the animals to be a good catalyst for people to feel better. I think I've always thought that that's a, that's a really good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to cover everything. Why don't we start off with the beginning? Let's start off with, with the return to expos because now in the whole, I, I hate the word like post COVID, but like the, the, the <laughs> quote unquote, like the post COVID world where things are kind of returning to, I hate, I hate to say normal cause nothing was ever really normal to begin with, but um, things are getting a little bit more re- relaxed. We'll say, what's it been like returning to expos and how's your business doing now that expos are more popular, easily accessible and can kind of be, you know, back to where they were before. Like how, how are you doing business wise with that? It's honestly the biggest way that I operate my business. Um, I'll be the first person to tell you I'm not big on social media before I really knew I was going to do this full time (laughs) to be perfectly blunt. I was on the verge of just fixing to delete it all because it's just not my thing. You know, I'm not knocking anybody that does. There's a lot of great people. It, It can be great to meet people that you otherwise wouldn't meet, but I'm the kind of person that loves and lives for in person interaction. And the shows give me that. I mean, I've been doing shows for a long time, but now that this is my business full time, like I said, out of this year, I have about three quarters of 2022's weekends booked up with shows. (laughs) Um, I love it. I know a lot of people talk about getting burnt out and I know a lot of people that won't do more than two or three shows in a row and then take a two or three week break. This is honestly the longest break that I'll have all year, and it's three weekends. And I'm kind of already at the point where I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go back to a show now. (laughs) I just, I love it. Online education is great, YouTube videos, all of that, but there's just nothing that can replace that tangible in-person engagement where people can visually see the animals. You put a a name to a face and it's just much more personable to me and the customers. So the shows are, are definitely where I put a lot of my energy. The other reason I particularly like shows is I live in Gulf coastal Texas and it is stupidly hot here right now. It kind of gets stupidly hot here all the time. (laughs) And so You know, I always joke with some of my buddies, shipping is tough for everybody right now. I mean, like you said, it's hard to say anything has gone back to normal. But there are so many people struggling just because of shipping irregularities and DOAs and lost in transits and things like that. And I was talking to one of my buddies the other day. And it was 10 o'clock at night and it was still 90 degrees here. 
and like 80% humidity at 10 o'clock at night. So shipping is just kind of out of the question for me for a lot of the year, honestly. Um, That's not to say I won't do it, but if you do request me to ship animals to you, you're definitely going to have to be patient because the weather is just going to have to be just right for me to be able to feel comfortable doing it. Obviously, I never want to send an animal to their death. I never want to set anybody up for heartbreak of opening up that package of, you know, a DOA animal that they were so looking forward to receiving. Um, But the other big thing with shows is you never know who you're going to meet at them. And so I've had some people, um, you know, big YouTubers that were big into reptiles that I didn't personally know of. And then some of my vendor buddies would come and be like, oh, check out her dart frogs. And they wouldn't know anything about dart frogs. And then they'd film an entire segment on it. Um, And then the other thing is you get a lot of people that you may not necessarily expect at the shows. So a lot of people ask me how I get into zoos, aquariums, museums, things like that. I couldn't tell you how many curators I've met just talking to at shows this past year. And that's how we, we form that relationship. They see what I have. Like I said, it's something tangible. Um, they can see the quality of the animal with their own eyes, don't have to worry about the shipping, things like that. And once again, that personal level of putting a name to a face, I think that makes people feel a lot more comfortable when you're able to do that. Yeah, I agree. The human element's really, really important. And just being a, being a physical presence, I think, adds a lot to your dynamic as well. Because like when you go to a show and you start talking to a vendor, I mean, look, it's a, it's a busy place, but certain vendors will engage you on a very, very different level than, than others. And especially frog vendors. I mean, there's not <laughs> like where I am in the Northeast. It's not like all the frog vendors are, are great up here. Um, we've got like Paul from Vivariums in the mist. He's, he's great. Paul's great. Um, Lynn from ferns frogs. Lynn's great. Lynn can give people a lot of information. There's a lot of really good vendors up here. So I don't really know what it's like in other parts of the country, but I feel like with dart frog people, you get a lot more of an intimate understanding of what's involved because we're kind of focusing on one relatively small group and kind of a relatively small niche as opposed to like some of the big tables and whatnot that have, you know, like 30 different ball python morphs and, yep. and like heaven <laughs> knows. Geckos, yeah. Leopard geckos, yeah. And the, the stuff we all joke about. <laughs> yeah. And the, the tarantula people are pretty good too. Like the, a lot of the invert vendors, like, um, like net like up here we've got like net bug and a couple of others like they those people are really really good like but again you can't convey that type of thing in like an email or text message you yeah, have to you have to physically absolutely. talk to someone and so there's this mentality and i've seen it and like you said you have your regional vendors that you're used to seeing at every show in the same region um it's it's no different down here i mean here in texas we have several different show circuits and i engage in all of them and i have several friends and we all do the same shows together we all have everything from inverts to mammals and you know all the different reptiles um and 
It's something that I've noticed is a lot of people at the shows, you kind of get to cater to all walks of life when it's in person. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've had walk by my table and they don't even realize that it's possible to keep a dart frog as a pet. Of course, the most common question I'm sure we all get asked, no matter where you're at, is, oh, well, aren't they poisonous? Oh, well, they kill you, (laughs) something along those lines. And even if they're not necessarily interested in keeping them as a pet, you know, tying back into that, it's all about education. If you can educate the general public, give them something tangible to actually care about. You know, it'd be really funny if you just totally trolled people and be like like oh they're terribly poisonous like i had someone come with me on the ride here he opened up the cup and he touched one and, and now he's gone like it'd be i know it's terrible so but it'd be really it's, funny it'd be really funny to do that just funny once you say that so i'm not sure how prevalent it is outside of this area uh one of my best friends that i vend with is actually one of the biggest venomous dealers in the country uh, he was one of the first people to successfully captive breed Bushmasters. And he, like, I've literally been to his facility and it is insane. Um, and so there is a lot of crossover between dart frog people and venomous keepers. And we kind of joke about it all the time. But yeah, I'll have like hardcore dart frog customers. And then they see what he has on his table. And then they get super interested in that and then vice versa. Uh, So another funny thing is I was actually invited to vend at Venom Fest in Missouri later on this year. (laughs) So uh, I don't know if it's the first time dart frogs are making a presence there. But like I said, there is a lot of crossover between the two groups. Um, I think the best hypothesis we have is them just being very misunderstood groups of animals um obviously you know we know our poison dart frogs are harmless in captivity not so much with the venomous snakes unless you're doing bad unethical things to them um but yeah that's kind of the best that we came up with is just you keep them as display animals as well You know, obviously, if you're keeping a gaboon that's not a snake, you're going to be taking out like a ball python. And as we all know, your dart frogs are all display animals as well. So it kind of started to make sense after we thought about it. But yeah, it was just something that had never really crossed our mind before. I think it's just a different mindset. And it's it's not to be derogatory to, to reptile people, but... I feel like, especially, I mean, especially dart frogs, there's this some semi-demanding species. I mean, real, excuse me, <laughs> realistically, dart frogs aren't that difficult, but it takes some discipline. You have to make sure you have your feeders ready. It's a look-but-don't-touch type of species. Right. You have to have them set up a certain way. And I feel like it's the same thing with, with venomous as well in some ways because yep. it takes discipline. You have to have a protocol. If, yep, there, if there's an incident, you, you have to have everything ready. I think that people don't realize the amount of work that goes into having a venomous animal because a venomous animal owns you. You exactly. know what I mean? If, if you're doing it correctly. And I, I could see that it's like the, I think it's like, it's the work that goes into it that makes it so appealing. 
like with the dart frogs and the other frogs, it's like, I don't, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's your whole life too, obviously, but the amount of work that goes into it is work that you make for yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not going to do this because you don't enjoy it. Otherwise it won't succeed. You do this because you enjoy it. Yeah. So spending, you know, your Saturday night making fruit fly cultures or, <laughs> or I guess if you've, I mean, I, I'd love to do a show on, on venomous, but I, I have to find the right species and the right person. But, you know, like writing up a protocol, having a notebook ready with the species, scientific name, common name, you know, if there, is there yep. anti, is there anti-venom available for and that particular species? You know, at, the at other like, thing as well, that is, I would say probably the most challenging because if that is something you are interested in doing, I can certainly help you out because I have a lot of very, very renowned venomous friends um, in the hobby. But something I've noticed with them and especially working side by side with them is, of course, we all always want to make sure our animals go to the best home or get the best care possible. So you do what you can to vet any potential customers. You know, I'll be honest, I've had people get mad at me because I've reviewed sales to them at shows because they just it's tough. You don't know if they're just trolling or if they're really just not having a clue what it takes to have these animals. I'm sure it's, you know, a combination of those and everything in between. But when you're dealing with the venomous, you know, a lot of my venomous friends have said it's it's an entirely different ball game because, you know, we've seen people that will completely irresponsibly sell a rhino viper, an African bush viper or something to a minor. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how this works. <laughs> and then there's also a lot more laws in place. And it varies not only state by state, but county, you know, the individual county makes a difference. Um, different city ordinances. Uh, some places require you to have a lot stricter licensing than others. So it's, it's definitely an advanced hobby at least if you're doing it correctly. Yeah, I could definitely see that being, I mean, it's amazing with the number of venomous snakes out there for sale in the trade. And it's, we don't, up here in New York, it's, look, not, nothing is, nothing is legal here up in New York. It's, it's, <laughs> it's I, I don't want to get into a referendum on the state's animal laws, but yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to other, I've been to shows in other states, like I've been to Hamburg, and I've seen a lot of venomous there, and it's amazing that nothing really, I mean, bad things have happened, but nothing like really, really bad has happened to the point where the whole world has become aware of it, and it could really do a lot of damage to people's, you know, to responsible people. I mean, look, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of if you can be responsible, if you can handle something, if you know that you have the discipline and the work that goes into it, you shouldn't be punished for for doing that. Yeah. But however, exactly. though, I think that there's a lot of people out there who just aren't equipped to handle certain things, and yep. that that's what end, ends up ruining it for the responsible people. But that's realistically the way it goes with with anything, I guess. But yeah, um, I mean, like me, like even if like, don't get me wrong, like I, I've thought about it, and it's funny you mentioned gaboons because the, the gaboon viper is it's probably my favorite venomous, and of course, it's like the the most <laughs> horrific, the most horrific bite to die from. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. You know what I mean? Because like, look, you know, I, I got a family. I mean, if something happened to me, then they would get saddled with it. And if something happened to me, it would just, it's just not my, it's not, not in my five-year plan. But I mean, again, I feel like there are people who can do it responsibly. Who, you, know, you should have your rights. But I mean, again, that's, that's the way it goes with everything. I, so, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just got to be responsible. Know what you're doing. Yeah. Don't be stupid. Don't get cocky, especially with those animals. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So when you when you mentioned you're you're supplying frogs to zoos and scientific institutions now, how did that start out? And um, like, give us give us the the lowdown on how that's working out for you. So for the academic institutions, a lot of it actually started from my time at A and M and being a student there. And then, you know, we kind of touched on it, so I won't go super into depth and beat a dead horse or anything, but I have worked previously in exotic vet med. I've worked with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife as a wildlife biologist and uh, very, very heavily worked, um, you know, as a keeper. And so all of those kind of gave me unique ties to different people in each one of those industries. And so right now I've predominantly been working with different facilities in the state of Texas. Um, I have actually also had a, a zoo in a neighboring state. I can't say which zoo at the moment, <laughs> um, but they've reached out to me about acquiring some darts as well. But uh, like when I taught at A&M, so there is a professor and a clinician there. Her name's Dr. Alice Blue McClendon. She is a phenomenal woman, brilliant veterinarian, and works on all forms of wildlife, everything from frogs to elephants. And when I was there this past spring semester teaching, she had kind of approached me about the subject. So they have a facility called the Winnie Carter Wildlife Center on campus, and it's at the vet school. And they take in uh, donations of everything, pretty much any type of wildlife you can think of, they've had in there. And that's where they teach veterinarians, um, both already licensed practicing veterinarians and aspiring exotic zoo wildlife vets, the actual hands-on medicine with wildlife and exotics. Because I always tell people you can read about something in a textbook all day long, but until you actually get that hands-on experience, it's just, it's different. Nothing can replace the hands-on experience in that matter. And so when I had taught, uh, a lot of the clinicians and professors came in and talk about being a little intimidating, <laughs> uh, having all these world-renowned professors and whatnot, and they're just kind of staring you down and asking you question after question, and it's just little me there with my collection of amphibians. <laughs> um, but everybody was super nice, very, very great experience, and she had approached me and you know, of course, there's always a bunch of paperwork, red tape, anytime you're dealing with um, zoos, aquariums, museums, any kind of institutions like that. It's never as simple. Oh, yeah, bring them down. You know, we got space for them next week. It's never just one person. There's always several hands in the pot. And so whenever they do have some room open up, 
that's kind of the plan is we're going to have some, probably some dart frogs. They also kind of threw around the idea of the Vietnamese mossy frogs because um, Dr. Blue really loved those guys when I brought them in. <laughs> but it goes back to kind of giving back to the community and helping advance the hobby as well. Because I'll be the first to tell you, especially with my experience teaching hands-on this year, amphibian medicine is by far the most lacking. I mean, we know more about fish medicine at this point than we do amphibian medicine. It's just so wildly different from anything else. Um, There's so few people that are actually doing it and especially specializing in it. And I hate to say it, but in the vet field, I mean, I'm sure we've all had our experiences of quote unquote exotic vets that'll see your animal that they probably don't really have any business seeing. Um, (laughs) So it's, it's something that is a very special pet project to me that I'm always going to continue to work on probably the rest of my life, just because of my unique ties to every aspect of being a keeper, breeder, um, professional zookeeper, vet med, all of that stuff. They've already asked me to come back and continue teaching every spring at the vet school. So that's really cool. I actually helped them write and develop their uh, standard operating procedures and safety protocols for different species of amphibians because they didn't even have them because that's just how lacking amphibian medicine is. <laughs> so that's that's kind of my biggest lifelong project that I'm working with a very good team of professors and clinicians is to really advance amphibian medicine to a much higher caliber than it currently is or certainly ever has been. Yeah, you're definitely right. There isn't there is the definitely a lack of it. I mean, even even in Mater's the chapters on amphibian medicine is they're really, really small. It's almost like yeah. uh, like it's just kind of a couple of footnotes in addition to the reptile medicine. But you'd think with like aquaculture, like with, with frogs being bred for food and whatnot, there would be more of a demand for more it because of it. outside of the pet trade, look, there's millions and millions of frogs get consumed by people yeah. all over the globe. You think they'd be more interested in that? Plus, I feel like chytrid is the only thing that people seem to be aware of when it comes to any kind of frog health concern. Yeah. And there's so many other things, especially in, in, in captive husbandry situations. Like, I mean, like you, have, you have obese frogs. Oh, have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like corn, corneal lipidosis. And mm-hmm. even that's just like a little short paragraph in there. But And know. even a lot of the medications that are used, that was something else that we've been working on. Because, um, you know, when you're in a unique position like that, it takes a village to really make substantial gains on it. And, you know, it's a team of us, me as a private keeper, that this is what I really focus on. Uh, One of my very, very good friends and former colleague of mine, Dr. Kimberly Rose, was actually just, um, I guess, kind of uh, indoctrinated, for lack of a better word, to be the head veterinarian for the Houston Aquarium here. And... I think it's unfortunate, especially me coming from a zoo background. Uh, a lot of people think like, oh, if it's a zoo, especially an AZA or ZAA, they have everything figured out. They specialize in everything. They keep that as definitely not the case. 
um, especially with amphibians. So it's, it takes a lot of consulting. And like I said, the best way I can put it is it really does take a village to, to really make substantial strides for both us as keepers, um, doctors, and most importantly, the animals themselves. You know, if we can figure out how to better treat them, that's going to do nothing but good things for them. Yeah, the AZA's amphibian husbandry guidelines is pretty much based on private hobbyist <laughs> input. I, I just, it's yep. it's out there. If any of you listeners haven't found it yet, if you just Google AZA amphibian husbandry, you should be able to find it somewhere. I have it in my, if I can find it, I'll, I'll, I'll post a link. I, I don't know. I have it like in my favorites buried somewhere, but the, the contributions of the private hobbyists and private breeders have been really extremely beneficial. If not like, I mean, look, a lot of these institutions don't breed their frogs on site. They buy them from yeah. private breeders like you. I mean, I've had quite a yeah. few people on the show who supply frogs to zoos and scientific institutions because they don't really want to be bothered with breeding them. You know yeah. what I mean? So they, they rely on private people to, to do it. And one of my, there's people out there who are critical of people having animals like this privately. And they say, well, an animal like that only belongs in a zoo. And my, <laughs> my response to them is, well, where do you think the zoo got them from? Exactly. So that's, that's the answer to that question. But yeah, the, 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 the private individual hobbyist business, whatever, is definitely one of the underlooked um, Im important things in the whole zoo dynamic is how much they rely on private people to supply them with with frogs. And I just I don't know. I feel like that's something that really should be recognized more. You know what I mean? I just yeah, I, I definitely feel like agree with you. I feel like people should get credit for their hard work, and especially to have your animals displayed in a zoo. I I I do. I feel like some sort of credit is 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 definitely worth conferring on the person who supplied those frogs. <laughs> And I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, we've all been to the zoos and all kind of joked and teased. And some people get outright mad about how they keep a lot of their amphibians, especially the dart frogs. Um, it, it happens. I'm not going to sit here and say one way or the other. Uh, but with zoos, a lot of times it's just unrealistic expectations that people have of them. Because if I've learned anything in all of my time working in all of these fields, it's when you have so many hands working on the same animals, the same projects, things are going to happen. You know, in some ways, it's almost easier for me keeping my entire collection solo than it would be to, you know, go back to working as a zookeeper, having to work with other people and people that do things differently. And a lot of times the keepers, you know, unfortunately amphibians especially are often lumped into the entire herp department. And we all know keeping reptiles and amphibians can be incredibly different. And so a lot of the herp people wind up getting tasked with caring for whatever amphibians they have. And, you know, it's not their forte. It's not their strong suit. It's not what they specialize in. So once again, that goes back to the role that private keepers play. Um, a lot of people may not even realize they are keeping them incorrectly. And so it, yeah, it <laughs> it's kind of a vicious cycle. But that's one thing I will say is I've had a lot of places throughout Texas anyway, start reaching out to me 
And like the Houston Aquarium, like I just said, my friend, Dr. Rose has been reaching out to me and I've been helping them with their dart frogs on display. Uh, so sometimes it just takes a little bit of patience and a little bit of willingness to help. Yeah, it's almost like anything else where you'd hire an outside consultant because when you think about it, a zoo is a business. They're dealing with hundreds, if not more, hundreds and hundreds of species. And not everyone's going to hundreds of yeah, employees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so not everybody's going to be an expert. I mean, everyone's going to have some sort of specific skill that applies to a certain situation, but you can't do I mean, one thing I've learned is like you can't do everything. You know what yeah. I mean? Even just even if you're in a zoo, you're not necessarily going to be able to manage every single species without some sort of consultation from outside, whether it's a dart frog or sloth or a, a, a rhinoceros or whatever it is. Yep. So how did you end up working with captive bred Ufaga Pamilio blue jeans? Because, <laughs> well, I, I, let me take that back. I do know how you started because we had talked about it briefly a while ago. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted you to get back on now because some time has passed. I know the project has developed, but just for everybody out there who's not necessarily familiar with, with blue jeans, I'm sure the majority of you are, they're one of the most commonly imported species in the trade, at least here in the U.S. And they're generally imported because they're so it's it's cheaper to import them than I guess it is to breed them in captivity. So there really hasn't been a tremendous amount of effort on a grander scale to eliminate the need for them to be imported. I mean, they're not in any particular danger in the wild. They're actually really, really common. But I think the idea is that we, we kind of want that less and less. And you took it upon yourself to start this project with, with blue jeans to get them more readily, readily available as captive bred. So what was your motivation for that? And how did, how did that whole thing start out? <laughs> so like m so many other people, I was completely enamored with them. Uh, they've always been some of my favorite dart frogs. And it's kind of a funny story. I could not even tell you the name of the person anymore that I got my original uh, pair from. But it was at a reptile show in Houston many, many years ago, probably close to a decade now. And they had had uh, what they thought was a probable pair, young probable pair, but weren't proven out. And they just hadn't had any success with them. And they just weren't interested in keeping them anymore. And I had talked to them and I was like, you know what, I'll take them. Because uh, at that point, you know, like so many other people, I never had any intentions of doing this as a full business or even breeding, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was just a hobby, just something I enjoyed with animals I enjoyed. And they were actually some of the very first darts that I ever successfully bred, <laughs> funny enough. Um, but it did take some trial and error with those guys. So they are definitely unique. Uh, I think that's why a lot of people love them. Of course, they are popularized. You know, a lot of times if you see them on nature or dart frogs on nature documentaries, something like that, a lot of times it's the little strawberry blue jeans that you'll see on there. Um, and then like you had touched on already, you know, if you go to Central America and their native range, they're really quite common and abundant down there. Uh, which is good in a way, but also not because, like you said, they are so commonly imported as wild-caught specimens. 
And tying back to the lack of amphibian medicine, that unfortunately leads to a lot of those imports dying. Uh, We've done different uh, skin cultures, um, fecals, things like that, and seen just all kinds of crazy stuff come back on those results. And some things are easily treated uh, with like metronidazole, uh, panicure, you know, super common treatments. Others, it's like, what the heck? We have no idea what this is or how to treat it. And so a lot of them perish. Uh, With my background being in wildlife and fishery science, part of my degree was actually wildlife ecology and conservation. So with that said, that was a big motivating factor for me to really kind of hunker down and figure these guys out and work on reliably producing them to offer those captive bred specimens to uh, different zoos, uh, personal, private breeders, and just plain hobbyists. Uh, They're a fantastic frog, like I said, one of my very favorite. They will always be very special to my heart. Uh, They're just a complex little frog, honestly, very unique. They're not like any other frog in my collection, other Ufaga included. Um, And I think just watching the entire rearing process, like I said, I have other Ufaga and it's just... It's just different with those guys. Um, And then from the nerdy wildlife biologist side of me as well, I think it's fascinating how complex they are just, you know, locality speaking, taxonomically, um, you know, a lot of us still refer to them as Ufaga Pamelio. You'll hear other people refer to them as typographica. So a lot of it people can't even agree on at this point in time. And then the other thing with blue jeans is it's not, you know, a locale like we're used to with a lot of dart frogs, but more just a phenotypic descriptor of these guys. Um, so I won't even begin to butcher any of the names of like the Costa Rican locales, but you do have different blue jean localities throughout Nicaragua and Costa Rica as well. Uh, They haven't quite done the same with those guys as they have some of the Panamanian species. So I've seen people refer to like Almirantes and Man Creek as blue jeans when that's not what we classify as blue jeans. Um, so like I said, it's just complex because it's one of those things you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers at this point. Um, and then, you know, we say blue jeans. If you look in the literature, scientific papers, they're most commonly referred to as the strawberry poison frog. They just leave blue jean completely out of it. Cause like I said, that's just more of describing their phenotype, little red body with the, the blue jeans on. Um, and then you also have the black jeans as well. Uh, I do not personally work with those, but I know more people that, that work with those at the moment than most of the blue jeans. Um, but for me, you know, I had so many people asking me about them and everybody from complete beginners didn't really know much about dart frogs all the way up to zoological museum institutions. Um, large scale breeders, things like that. So for some reason, it's just those guys are 
kind of one of the poster children. I'd put them up there with Azurius for dart frogs. It's just anybody that's heard of dart frogs has heard of the little strawberry blue jeans. So that was a big thing for me. Um, the other one or other big motivating factor is, like you said, a lot of them are wild-caught imports. So they're very cheap. And it's kind of an uphill battle for me because, you know, a lot of times I'll sell my captive bred babies average around, you know, 125, 150 bucks. And you go on to a place like Underground Reptiles and see the Nicaraguan imports for, you know, 40 bucks. And the common person is not going to understand why they're so much cheaper than a captive bred specimen. And so for me, it's kind of trying to to fight the system on that one because I, it's we've all been there. It's heartbreaking when you lose an animal and especially people that are getting into them as a first time species or first time dart frog. It's going to be very discouraging if you get this little wild caught specimen in that got caught out of probably Nicaragua. Uh, imported in and sat in little containers, went through shipping, who knows if it went through any kind of treatment. And then most people, newcomers, are not going to quarantine. Let's be real. I always recommend it, but we, we know how human nature goes. And so you have a nice planted tank you worked hard on. You introduce these wild-caught specimens. They die. Well, guess what? Now you have to rip your tank apart because you don't know what they shed in there. Um, So the blue jeans are kind of my my personal poster child that I use as the conservation biologist and me. You know, just because something is readily available while caught doesn't mean you should get it, um, even though they're not particularly endangered at this time. Anytime you start doing a mass import of wild pots, it it's going to eventually start to take toll on the native population. Uh, but just providing healthier overall specimens. Uh, a lot of times I've seen wild caught imports and they don't look quite as pretty as my captive bred babies. I'm not trying to sound biased or anything, but I've had several people tell me the same thing. <laughs> Um, whenever you're giving them a regular supplemented diet. And of course I use Tankman's natural rose carotenoids and those guys. And my project with my old pair now I'm working on is really producing a high blues with them. So I had just um, sold a couple of them to another zoo uh, in Texas and they got a batch of my last really high blue babies. So they were really excited about that. Um, but yeah, I think just watching them, you know, I've seen them breed. I've seen them rear their young year after year. And it just never gets old. You know, they exhibit some of the highest degree of biparental care, even amongst Ufaga. You know, like I said, I work with several other Ufaga species. And there's just nothing else like them. That was my next question. You you mentioned earlier that they're very, very different behavior-wise and whatnot from other frogs. So let's just say that someone is keeping 
Azurius is, is a good example. We all kind of have a good understanding of how Azurius should be kept. Leaf litter, uh, lots and lots of leaf litter and whatnot. Not, not, I mean, some arboreal stuff can go on, but um, you know, more of a ground-based, whereas like some of the pamilio kind of move up and down from the forest floor to the canopy. But what, would you, what advice would you give someone who had just kept, say, Tinctorius and now wanted to take the step into keeping blue jeans what should that person look out for in terms of maybe a different type of setup or different types of behavior? Like, what what's the difference between the two in terms of care and and everything that happens in between? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, I will say, <laughs> I actually got asked that question so much. I did do a build video for my blue jeans, uh, so you can actually see the one that my oldest pair is in in my living room, they're like my prized dart frogs, love them to death. If I can only keep one tank of dart frogs, it would be them. Uh, so you can see how I built that tank from the ground up and what I recommend, uh, not only for just keeping them overall, but especially if you're trying to breed them. I've had a lot of people reach out to me that have kept them and had no breeding success with them. And for me, like I said, in the beginning, I've been working with them for years. It took a little bit of trial and error to find out what really worked for them overall. Of course, you're always going to get your little oddball exception to the rule that, you know, doesn't want to rear and this bromeliad or, you know, this species of bromeliad, something silly like that. Uh, but big thing with them that I will say is just kind of typical for most Ufaga anyways is how you scape out the tank. So what I do, and you can actually see in the video, any plants that I use in the front half of the tank floor are going to be very low growing ground cover. Uh, so really the only plant that I have growing across is a strawberry begonia, which is kind of funny and ironic because the strawberry blue jeans love that strawberry begonia. <laughs> Um, the little babies always like hiding out in there, but for breeding purposes, that's going to be the main reason, uh, because obviously they are obligates. They're not ones that you're going to pull and hand braise like an Azurius. And so you have to leave them in there with parents. And so a lot of times, you know, I know that female really well at this point. I know where she typically lays her clutches of eggs, where they typically deposit their tads, that kind of thing. But sometimes they'll throw you for a loop, choose a different place. Uh, so you're not always even going to know that you have babies. <laughs> um, or I should say you may not always know how many babies you're going to have. Sometimes I get some random surprises in there and I'm like, where the heck have you been all this time? Um, but definitely Brahms with those guys. Uh, I like to use Regis personally. Uh, I used to do a lot of the smaller Neo Regelia for, for my blue jeans. And once I moved to some of the bigger Regis, I found I was having better success with healthy, viable offspring. Um, so in that tank, I have, um, what do I have? Uh, Finistralis is kind of the preferred Brahm I found with blue jeans. Uh, could just coincidentally be the ones I've had, but overall I'd say Finistralis is a good one to have in there with them. Um, also have a Saunders in that one too. Um, 
I typically just stick with one bigger aeroid. I'm an alocasia person. I know a lot of people aren't, but I love my jewel alocasia. So I have a Maharani in there with, um, uh, but like I said, you really want to leave the front part open. That way you can get a good visual. And especially when I'm in there trying to catch babies, uh, whenever I need to move them to their new home, it's a heck of a lot easier than having to rip up a bunch of plants, you know, that kind of thing. Um, whenever they do come out, you know, they are similar to a lot of the other Ufaga. They'll tend to hang around the same place for a while until they gain confidence, get a couple weeks old, start really moving around and exploring. Uh, for me, I always throw a bunch of springtails in, especially if I know I have babies or the mom is rearing. I'll personally do like a um, spoonful of springtails in each bromeliad that I'm in. Uh, they are a little bit different. So a lot of my other guys will use film canisters. I've never really known any blue jeans to do that, at least not in my experience. I started off trying to use film canisters. I had hit or miss success. Um, so I pretty much just rely on bromeliads with them. Uh, you know, my biggest successful clutch that I've ever had is five. I was super stoked with that. <laughs> um, but typically it's usually two to three per clutch that I'll get successful that a female can successfully reliably feed. Uh, some little oddities with the blue jeans is... You know, I have some Loma Partitas, I have some Popas, I have my Redheads. I pretty much have all my Faga in my living room for the most part. Uh, the blue jeans tend to be a lot more territorial. So if anybody else starts calling, I'll notice my males will come out and kind of go towards the direction of wherever another Faga is calling from. And then something else I've noticed that's pretty unique to them is males will tend to do a territorial call in the morning. Um, it is a different call. Um, I wish I could uh, share it on here. I don't even know if I could capture it super great. But you can definitely tell in person, especially when you've kept them for a long time, that they do have like their breeding call versus their territorial call. And like I said, every morning, like clockwork, my males will start going off like, hey, this is my turf. Everybody back off. <laughs> um, and then, of course, when they do start the breeding, the females will approach the males to start breeding. Males will tend to the clutches, empty their bladder to hydrate the eggs, kind of all the typical stuff there. Um, females are typically going to carry the tabs. Uh, I have had my oldest male carry a few tabs and be successful with it. Um, but usually it's the females because if the males will do it, the tabs are likely going to die because the female isn't going to know where to feed, uh, which makes sense. You know, if she's not the one carrying and transporting, the males just, you know, dumping them off at the random pool the mom doesn't know the directions to. Um, but supplementation is definitely important with them as well. Uh, I use all the Tinkman supplements, his calcium, uh, his acrite, which is the highly concentrated vitamin A. 
whenever my blue jeans are actively breeding, I'll supplement them uh, every two weeks with that. And I found that's definitely helped their reproductive success. And then the natural rose carotenoids, of course, being a red frog definitely helps bring out that vibrancy and maintain it. Um, but they're they're just an awesome little frog. They're really fun to watch. Uh, I hear a lot of people complain about them being shy, which my indication with that is you probably have something set up in their enclosure they don't like because I'll be honest, none of my blue jeans have ever been shy. Um, you know, I have pictures of mom and dad out with a couple of babies feeding completely out in the open. I can open the enclosure and they're still just chilling. Um, so they can be pretty finicky about how you set up their enclosure, in my experience. Uh, you do also get differences. So like my oldest pair of Nicaraguans, I will say they tend to be some of the boldest. Uh, they usually have darker legs than the Costa Ricans do. Um, but like I said, they're one of those frogs that's highly debated, you know, even amongst the the species you'll still hear Ufaga pomelio versus Ufaga typographica and they're just they're an oddball so that's why I love them <laughs> do you get any different um, phenotypes like do you have, do you get any variability in the offspring in terms of how red they are or how yes, blue they are okay. most definitely um so that's kind of the thing I'm currently working on now that why well, say now I mean they've been reproducing very reliably for the past probably four years or so for me. Um, I have some very high blues coming out now. Uh, so very, very, very blue legs all the way into like blue stomach, which is really cool because I mean, they, they look very different from their parents. So it's always fun to see how those guys come out and how they develop. Um, but right now I'm getting a lot with like very, very blue bellies. And kind of all the way up, even to blue shoulders, blue sides, things like that. Um, I'll try and send you a picture that you can use for for the podcast of some of my higher blue babies. <laughs> like blue overalls? Yep, basically. <laughs> They're fitting in with the times now that overalls are making a comeback. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is because when I see frogs that have come in from imports, like there's a lot of variability. Some are like ruby red and some of them are orange. And it's, I started asking myself like, well, is this just kind of normal wild variability or did these come from different locales and kind of got mixed together in the same yep. box? So you know? that's, that's a fair point. Like I said, blue jeans, they're just one of those that <sighs> once again, I'm going to repeat myself. You ask 10 different people, you'll get 10 different answers. And I think it's just because everybody refers to them as strawberry blue jeans rather than something specific like, you know, um, Ufaga pomelio ilopopa from Panama. Um, that's much more specific than the strawberry blue jeans. And so you'll see, uh, like even going to Central America, I've seen them where some of them have a lot more yellow on the belly. Some of them are a lot more like black spotted. Um, so I really do think it's a matter of different localities, but because blue jeans were just so commonly imported back in the nineties, 
I think nobody really cared back then. It was just like, oh, they're all the same. They're all just variable rather than thinking, oh, hey, these are probably different distinct localities like a lot of other dart frogs are. Kind of like, I guess, Bastimentos would probably be the best comparable example. What do you think some common problems might be for someone who did get a wild caught import as opposed to, say, captive bred individual? Definitely parasite load. Um, That's always a big one that we see. And if you're experienced, you know, a lot of people may have common um, uh, parasite medication on hand. But it's one of those things, you know, I never recommend it. I've seen a lot of people share pictures on forums or even people privately messaging me. And the frogs are just emaciated. Um, I've taken some in to try and rehab over the years. And an issue I've seen that I feel a lot of people don't necessarily talk about with amphibians as much as they do like reptiles is actually food as well. Um, You know, you got to think like the main diet of a lot of the blue jeans in the wild is actually ants. And so if you're taking wild caught specimens, immediately trying to put them on a fruit fly diet, they may not always adjust to that. Um, They may not recognize it as foods. Like that's a common problem with a lot of different species of imported snakes and lizards, for instance. You know, certain snakes, you try and throw them on a frozen thawed mouse and you know it's an obligate amphibian eater (laughs) it's not going to work um so diet can be a little bit tricky for wild caught ones something that i've personally experienced uh you know supplementation once again i won't say that's unique to blue jeans just darts across the board but like you said if you have wild caught imports a lot of times they may be more orangish kind of rust colored um which once again could just go back to the specific locality or it could just be you know lack of proper supplementation if you have them and they're getting washed out that kind of thing too you raise a good point with the diet and that's something i i never really thought of until you you brought it up but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, especially for. I mean, I'm just I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna speculate here, but in terms of parasites and whatnot, I mean, every living thing has a has a, a biome existing inside of its gut. Yep. It has yep. a, a, endemic bacteria, viruses, parasites, whatever. So during the export process, obviously, an animal is not going to be getting fed. So the stress compounded by that lack of diet. And you're right. I mean, they're not going to be eating dusted fruit flies in Nicaragua. So we're feeding them that now as basically the, the staple diet with little else. So is that somehow affecting their parasite load because we've changed the diet so much? Yep. You know, it's one of those things that, and again, I'm just, I'm just speculating, but you, you brought up a really, really good point that, you know, should be, should be looked into further, I guess. Yeah. I think, like I said, it's something that is a lot more common in the reptile side. Uh, like I said, especially I have a lot of friends that, work with rare oddball snakes, things like that, that eat fish or worms or, you know, different frogs, toads, things like that. And yeah, you see them at a show, Joe Blow isn't going to know like, hey, this isn't going to eat a frozen thawed pinky. (laughs) And so why would it be any different with the amphibians? Yeah, even even taking 
frozen thought for captive. Like I was, we were, we were talking before we, we started recording about one of my snakes and this particular snakes, you know, captive bred T negative albino blood python. And he finally started taking frozen thawed small rats after four years of only taking, yep. you know, fresh, you know, fresh killed. I don't feed live, but you know, he'll only take one that's, that's just fresh killed. They know they're picky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it just shows you how patient you have to be sometimes in this game to get what you want. Yeah. And then, like I said, I touched on it earlier too. Um, wild caught are really best left for the experienced keepers, the people that know what to look for can set them up appropriately because it, it really is disheartening and discouraging to new keepers. And it kind of reflects poorly on all of us as a hobby. If we're selling these fresh wild caught imports to, you know, some family that wants their first dart frog and, you know, kid cries, parents are mad. Oh, dart frog people are shady. It's, you know, we know it's not true. There's good and bad seeds in every hobby ever, but you know, when it's a really small community, it, it affects us more if there's one bad apple in the bunch, so to speak. Yeah. I think that the fact that they're eye candy helps that as well, because when you think about it, if you, if you're at, if you're at an expo and you see a $75 blue jeans wild caught, as opposed to like a $500 locale of familia that's like like dull green it's going to be a no brainer for most for most people i mean yeah. I, I know a lot yeah. of people that work only only work with obligates and i know some of the locales command a really high price and you know obviously justly so because it takes a lot to get them to reproduce in captivity but i think the fact that they're so brightly colored and so well known i mean the name strawberry frog has a lot to do with their undoing so to speak because yeah you know as well as i do that if these things were like really really rare they would totally be the most sought after frog in the world oh yeah if, if there was only <laughs> like five of them left people would be paying 10 grand a frog well more than that and it was only five left, i think but. that ties back into the issue like we talked about is they're very very common in their natural range and not nearly as commonly kept and certainly not nearly as commonly bred in captivity. And so is there going to come a point in time where they are suffering in their native populations and then, oh, well, hardly anybody was working with them in captivity. So now we're just kind of, you know, in limbo with them. And that's a big reason why I'm always going to keep them going, um, you know, as long as I can, as long as I can get them. Mine are definitely not going anywhere. I've had so many people offer to buy uh, my breeders from me. And I'm like, no, these frogs are never going to be for sale. They are my babies. <laughs> hey, re what about lighting and ventilation? Because I've heard things from other people about some of the large, uh, the large obligates that lighting and ventilation varies from species to species to locale to locale and have you noticed anything unique about them as opposed to other obligates or other species of dart frogs in terms of lighting, ventilation that might, you know, uh, might be... Ventilation? Um, I tend to give them a little bit more ventilation just because, like I said, if you go to their natural range, they're so widespread, you'll literally see them out in the open, just like across the street. They're not hard to come across. Um, so that was part of it for me is giving them a little bit more ventilation. 
And I'm not saying crank them up to, you know, 80 degrees or anything, but they also tend to breed a little bit better when it's a little bit warmer than some of my other darts, even my other Ufaga as well. Um, so those guys all keep, uh, I actually keep them separate from the rest of my frogs in a slightly warmer part of my house. Does the Texas weather affect it at all, do you think? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I get a lot of people because of where I live, like I said, Gulf Coastal, Texas. I never struggle with humidity, ever. <laughs> it's always very easy for me to maintain the humidity of my house, whether it's December or July. Um, but temperature can be a little bit challenging uh, just with if it's starting to get too warm. Um, so I had one summer a couple years back where it was just starting to get a little bit warmer in my living room where I keep uh, my blue jeans at. And like I said, they're actually kind of separate from everybody else in my collection. And I noticed that, you know, the mail was just going off, calling, calling, calling constantly. And then I was getting a lot more babies out of them. And I was like, huh. So I used to run it cooler in there. And when I started experiencing that, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to keep it the same. <laughs> Out of the clutches that you get, let's just say, like you mentioned before, you had a large clutch of, of five tadpoles. How many actually make it through the whole process into froglets from, from egg, to, so egg to tadpole? That was my record of actual five viable froglets. So that was a big one for me. Um, I did see that clutch that she laid and it was actually a clutch of eight eggs. And so on average, she usually, my oldest, um, a mature female will usually lay about five to six and usually two to three will make it. Um, that's just, it seems to be the average for those guys. I'm not complaining about it. Uh, whenever they do deposit the eggs, and this isn't just unique to the blue jeans, obviously any of the obligates, uh, the male will guard them and then the female goes and they do have to feed them within three days. And so she'll go deposit the eggs, uh, let them eat in there. Uh, but yeah, on average, my clutch size is typically five to six and usually, like I said, two to three viable froglets make it. And how long do you like to hold them back before you put them up for sale? <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of the magic questions that people ask. Yep. Uh, for me, I am kind of very protective mother hen with them. And so usually my blue jeans, I'll hold back about five to six months before I start considering moving them. Uh, I'll be honest, I get a lot of people reaching out to me. This is one of my... Honestly, probably by far my top requested dart frog that I get people wanting to buy from me. And that's everybody from just personal hobbyists all the way up to zoos, universities, things like that. Uh, to be fair, or at least as fair as possible, I do maintain a list and I try to alternate. Um, so, for instance, a zoo just got... Um, some of my last ones that I had and I currently have uh, two babies in there right now that are about a month 
month and a half out of water. And those two are going, um, well, I won't spoil it, but somebody we both know, somebody that's been on your show before, <laughs> a personal friend of mine. And so to try and keep it fair, I'll alternate between, okay, a zoo is getting this batch, a hobbyist is getting this one, just because I know what it's like to really, really want something. And a lot of people will go more towards the, uh, how do I say this, the higher end, so to speak, clientele. I mean, it sounds a lot cooler to be able to say like, oh, yeah, you know, mine went to the National Zoo than, oh, yeah, you know, this guy in Washington got them that I don't know. Uh, but I try and prevent that. So like I said, I'll, I'll alternate between institution and private hobbyist. Well, that's nice. Do you, do you keep any kind of a stud book in terms of like every like every place that your line has gone or like yep okay i do um that's not just unique to the blue jeans though i do that with everybody <laughs> um i just i work with i i keep a lot of pairs of the same species um certain ones i do keep groups like i have vanzellini in a group i have all my terribilis and uh, bigger breeding groups but for the most part, most of my breeders, I keep in 1.1 pairs. Um, I keep my logs of, you know, which clutch came from which pair. Then I'll repair off, um, hold back offspring. So that's what I was originally doing with my blue jeans is holding back offspring from one pair and then pairing up a grown offspring with an unrelated parent from the other pair, that kind of thing. Um, trying to maintain good genetic integrity anyways. Uh, but yeah, definitely anytime you're providing to any kind of higher institutions, that's information that they're going to want to know as well. Yeah. I was going to say that seems like something that they would want to know so that they could trace it back because I guess if, if they ever have a, a pair of reproduce and they want to, for some, I mean, again, I know we kind of talk about, they're probably not going to do that at all, but yeah. I guess if they, if they wanted to develop, <laughs> Uh, a breeding stock of their own for whatever crazy purpose. Obviously they wouldn't want to have too much in the way of a related line coming in again, right. but although, right. I mean, for all intents and purposes, most dart frogs in the hobby in the U S that aren't being imported are probably, probably very, very genetically similar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it happens. And how, how, how do you go about uh, sexing them? Because I know like with Tinctorious, we've got the kind of the body shape and the foot pattern and um, Terribilis, the females kind of become like Jabba the Hutt. But I've heard people <laughs> have had a lot of difficulty sexing Pamelius, especially blue jeans. Is there any way to sex them without um, so getting out of microscope? The best way is going to be looking for the throat patch on the males. Once you have a sexually mature male and they do mature faster than the females, so that's pretty common across dart frogs. Um, if you can get a good visual of their chin, all male blue jeans I've ever had, um, especially ones that, you know, I've raised up to sexable status, the throat patch is pretty prevalent on the male. So the best way I can equate it is it looks like a double chin. So with that said, you touched on obese dart frogs earlier. So if you have a really, or like all your dart frogs are obese and they all have that double chin, you might think you have a bunch of males. 
Um, but in a perfect world, ideal body condition, the males are going to look more like they have a double chin. Uh, females tend to be much more pear shaped as well than any of my males are, but definitely that throat patch is going to be the biggest indicator. The other good thing, which I personally love it with blue jeans, and this is my segue to anybody that is not familiar with them. A lot of people don't bring up noise level, especially at shows when you're selling to newcomers. I always bring up noise level because I'm also a parrot person. And that's something you hear very commonly with parrots is, well, how noisy are they? With dart frogs, I think that's something important to bring up to people as well. Because like, I love leucomelas to death. They're one of my go-to recommendations for a first dart frog. The only real drawback I tell people is if you are going to get you know, driven crazy by it, they do have a loud call. Um, so if that's not something you're willing to deal with, then they're probably not for you. Out of every dart I keep in my house, everything from your Phyllobates, you know, Tinks, Erotus, Luke's, different Ranatomeo, Faga, the blue jeans are by far no comparison, the absolute loudest. <laughs> You can hear those guys from anywhere in my house. So if you uh, hear calling young, yeah, you're not going to have any issue identifying that as a male because their call is unmistakable. <laughs> yeah, they really sound off. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. are very, very loud. I love it. I love their call. And like I said, that's pretty unique with the blue jeans I found is they do have different calls. Um. But yeah, they're definitely a loud frog. Here's another speculative, a speculative question for you. And I know you're a big bird person. I've heard people talk about Ufaga species, Pamilio and Histrionica, whatnot, as being very, very similar to birds. The parental care, the fact that they have spatial recognition, they kind of know where their nests are, and... A lot of people say that if you have bird experience, that that might translate well into dealing with with um, Ufaga. Do you think that they, I mean, I know that they're not monogamous, but do you think that a pair has to kind of, I don't want to say bond the same way that a, a monogamous pair of birds will, but do you think that if you, you pair the wrong male and the wrong female together, that might not lead to a successful breeding? Absolutely, because I've had that happen to me before. <laughs> Um, so with them, like I said, I've seen people try and keep them in groups. I'm not going to say it can't be done, but definitely all of those guys I keep in one point once, um, I have had to play around before, uh, once I get them successful, I just leave it. I don't mess with anything unless they start not being successful for me anymore. Uh, I was actually just talking to Julio about this yesterday. Uh, we had this conversation and he said he does the same thing where sometimes it's kind of like an old married couple. They'll be great and prolific and very successful breeders for you for a while. And then just, uh, you know, get sick of each other. Like you have your side of the house. I have mine. And so that's when we both said that we'll repair up and um, change things up. 
Because I think a common misconception a lot of people have is, you know, they're afraid to mess with anything, which if it's working, I agree, don't fix it if it ain't broke. But if they start slowing down and nothing else has really changed, that would be when I consider changing up pairings or maybe changing up like misting cycles, temperatures, things like that. And it, it is it is possible just for everybody out there listening, you can just get a pair that's not compatible really with, with any species of locales. Like I have a pair of yep. bicolors that I've had since 2016. It's a sexed pair. Male calls from time to time. The female lays eggs, but they're never fertile. And she'll, yep. she'll lay maybe two clutches a year and they're always duds. Uh, and this, I, I don't know where this particular line comes from. They, they don't look anything like the Urabas. They don't look like anything that's been imported in the past, like, I don't know, like four or five years. So I didn't want to pair them with, I didn't want to mess around and pair them with something else, but it's like, it's like I've kind of accepted it and moved on from now. Is that these yeah, two? Yeah, they're just pets to you. It's, yeah, yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not going to happen. It's funny because anyone I've ever spoken to, I'm like, why am I having such a hard time? And no one can give me a straight answer because everyone's like, mine are laying a clutch right now. I'm like, I don't know what it is. It's just, <laughs> but you can, despite everything you do, you can just get a pair of frogs that just don't want anything to do with each other. Yep. I mean, that's just animals, period. You know, I've seen birds that people pair up and they're literally trying to kill each other. And then you pair them up with somebody else and they're perfectly fine. Sometimes you just have the hermit that doesn't want to be with anybody ever. And, you know, you just kind of have to accept them for who they are. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Well, we're kind of winding down to the end, but I wanted to end on this. And that is... You and I were talking before we got started recording tonight about some of the work that you've done with combat veterans and bringing animals to them as a, um, I guess similar to what, I guess similar to what you might do with like, say like a therapy dog, but you're bringing, you've brought in a whole wide variety of animals, including dart frogs. I know that you come from a military family and, and you know, I'm, I think that a lot of people in the military need services and whatnot and things like that, that they're not necessarily getting. And I think that what you're doing to be able to bring this to them is, is a very, very remarkable thing. And I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk to us about that, especially how they must've reacted to seeing dart frogs. Cause I can't imagine that <laughs> something that's as commonly seen as say like a service dog. So tell us all about it. Yeah. So, um, like you touched on and touched on a little bit earlier, I do come from a very big military family And so that is something that's very important to me is to be able to support those guys. Because at the end of the day, I mean, regardless of what your personal beliefs are, this isn't about politics. You know, that's not the place for this. Uh, These guys, you know, they're willing to put their lives on the line for all of us. And I think that certainly commands respect from each and every one of us. And I'm certainly proud of all the service members that you know, I'm fortunate enough to call my family and my friends. And with my brother being a, you know, combat veteran that suffered pretty, pretty tragically on his last tour in Afghanistan, he definitely wanted to give back. So he's working with the veterans. And, you know, of course, being my brother, we talk all the time. And the idea light bulb kind of went off on his head of like, hey, well, you know, animals helped you because I went through some pretty major surgeries as a kid. And that was, 
my therapeutic release, what helped me get through it. You know, it's no secret. Animals are great medicine for so many people. Uh, and they just bring something out of us that, you know, nothing else really can. And so that was kind of the the plan that we had come up with. And, you know, I have a lot of great friends that also have a wide assortment of animals. I'm friends with a lot of people that uh, own private zoos in Texas and things like that. And so I had borrowed some other animals and, of course, brought darts because, uh, you know, who doesn't love beautiful dart frogs? <laughs> Even though, like you said, it's not going to be anything like a service dog, it still can be a very medicinal therapeutic release for people to see and people to learn and just take their minds off of whatever's troubling them at the time. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these men and women go through things that none of us can even imagine. And so, you know, giving them something, the thing with animals that we all know is, you know, they don't judge, they don't care, they don't care what you look like, what you've been through. So that's what makes them so healing for so many people that have been through uh, physical and mental trauma like this. And so you get everybody from the guys that are, you know, paraplegics, guys that have had their limbs amputated, people that have been shot, burned, all kinds of stuff that, you know, these people should never have to go through. And it kind of makes a lot of them revert back into their shell, which is completely understandable. And so when you go in there with these animals, it really helps bring people out and bring them a joy that you know, they might've not gotten otherwise. And it's also a great gateway to them asking questions and, you know, learning about the things that we love dearly. I mean, obviously if you're listening to this, you probably love dart frogs. And so what better way to help educate people? You know, it's a, it's a great way to give back to those that have always been willing to give to us or give for us. And so, like I said in the beginning, it's definitely something I encourage anybody that's willing and able to do. Um, even if you don't think it's relevant, you know, like I said, I, I have access to a wide variety of animals. I have a lot of animals myself. But even if you just go in there with, you know, a bunch of different dart frogs and start talking to them about them, explain to them, it can really make make the day for these people. And you know, times like these is when we all need to band together and, and kind of work to lift each other up. So that is uh, my takeaway for y'all. <laughs> if you're listening, if you've made it this far. Yeah. I, I think that beauty and simplicity is one of those things that we often overlook. And it, it's funny that this came up because a, a while back I put up, I put up a picture on Instagram. I can't even remember if it was, if it was for the show or whatnot, but it was just a picture of a blue jeans in sitting in a bromeliad. And I just, I don't know what possessed me to do this. I just wrote, you know, to find something, find beauty in something simple today. And it really boils down to that when you think about it in life is just kind of, you know, finding something simple that's, that's beautiful and something that you can enjoy. And it's going to bring a positive change about in you, whether that's, yep. you know, frogs, whether that's art, music, you know, hockey <laughs> whatever it is whatever it is i mean any kind of healthy outlet yeah i mean it must have been really rewarding to you know walk in and, and 
get a smile from someone who may not have smiled in a, <laughs> in a very, very long time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a component to all this. I mean, like I said in the beginning, there's, there's a, a very, very significant human element in this because, I mean, these things don't need us. You know what I mean? Without us interfering, they would be fine in the wild. You know what I mean? It's obviously, yep. assuming we weren't, you know, dest- destroying their environments. But <laughs> we, we need them. Yeah. When you think about it, we need them. This is what gives our lives purpose is, you know, taking on their care and making that part of our own in many cases. Yeah, working to learn something more than just us. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. That's that's an important thing. Well, Audrey, I want to just give you a chance to just tell everybody how they can find you either at an expo or whatnot and... Just tell us, tell everyone how they can see your YouTube channel because um, you've got some cool videos up there. You've got the the, the uh, Pamilio Vivarium tutorial. So kind of give everybody else, uh, everybody listen, kind of an idea how they can find you. Sure. So like I said, I will be the first to admit I kind of suck at social media, so I'm not the best, but I have been posting regularly, so <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, but my Instagram and my Facebook page are both Urban Amphibia. If you see the orange Blackfoot Terribilis, you are at the right place. Uh, YouTube channel is Audrey's Urban Exotics. Uh, I will admit I have not posted a video in a while just with my show schedule. It's been very crazy. Um, But I do have a couple of projects in the works that are coming up. And then like Dan said, if you are interested more in how I built out um, my oldest breeding pairs and closure of the blue jeans, that video is on there step by step too. As far as shows, I tend to post ahead of time, or at least I try to, on Instagram and Facebook what shows I'm doing. Um, But pretty much any show in Texas, I definitely do. Um, I have also ventured out as far as Florida. So I uh, was at the Orlando Show Me Snakes show back in May. Um, Also do quite a few shows in Louisiana, too. Uh, But yeah, so if you are ever curious, Uh, You're free to message me on any platform, um, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, and I will happily get back to you. Great. Good stuff. All right. I want to thank Audrey for taking the time to come back on the show. I know she's been really busy with the, with the expo circuit. So I, I, you know, look, I love hearing about new topics and getting into Pamilio blue jeans has been something I've been looking to do for a long time. And Audrey was just the right person for the job. I picked up a lot from, <laughs> I picked up a lot. I, I always do. And uh, for you guys out there who are curious about Pamilio and blue jeans, I hope you picked up a lot too. And other than that usual, you know, thanks everyone for listening. We've got episode hundred coming up really, really soon. So I want to thank everybody who's been a listener for this whole time. It's, you know, it's been a lot of episodes and, um, and again, everybody who reached out with those nice reviews again, I just, just to piggyback what I said earlier, thanks a lot for that. It means a lot. So other than that, Catch up with you guys again soon.